I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show it feels like there should be a like in the old school like iMovie and stuff or iPhoto when it would be like three two one (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have a you can look up on youtube these countdown videos if you ever need encouragement for something Uh it's really hard for me to give myself my um uh injection every couple weeks and so i will play one of these countdowns (laughs) and it will do 10 9 8 like it's new year's and there's confetti everywhere (laughs) (laughs) it feels very exciting i love that you know that's an important thing to do is you have to add your own excitement to your life you know you you really do (laughs) give yourself some confetti yeah So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have K.M. Spera joining us, zooming on in to the damn library hyperspace. K.M. Spera is a queer and trans author who lives in Baltimore, Maryland with his tiny dog and goofy cat. He is the author of speculative novels such as First Become Ashes and Docile and a third, Uh, coming soon, that follows up on his Hugo and Nebula-nominated novelette, Small Changes Over Long Periods of Time. They're about cults and trauma, consent and debt, and a horny trans vampire, respectively. His short fiction appears in Tor.com, Uncanny, Lightspeed, and more. You can find him on the internet at kmspara.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at kmspara. And thank you so much for joining. Of course. I'm just trying to get as many people as possible to say horny trans vampire. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it's in there after everyone's read my bio and like the number of respectable humans who have done that make make me giggle. That was so fun. It's so rare that I feel like a bio uh, contains a surprise at this point. And (laughs) the announcement that that you're expanding that, I was just like, you are, what? Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> wonderful. Well, Christopher, thank you for this news. <laughs> well, I'm happy for your surprise. Uh, hopefully I will finish it and it will come soon uh, <laughs> and uh, not um, be pushed back. But we all know how 2020 has, you know, treated creativity. So yeah, that's true. I'm currently revising that book. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you on. First Become Ashes is such a wild and enveloping read and i just uh i'm gonna start talking about the drink because that's (laughs) (laughs) that's what i'm gonna do now
often um, with drinking alcohol, people think that it has to be like difficult to drink in some way. Like it has to be, um, you know, like an old fashioned or a martini. It's got this sort of like- uh, The old fashioned is my favorite cocktail. And I love whiskey cocktails because it reminds me there's alcohol in what I'm drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one is super dangerous because it is not, it just tastes delicious um, and like fruit juice because it's, so I started with this, um, I had this amazing purple chocolate tea. Um, and it's, wow. that's what it's called. It's, um, it's put out by a brand called Just Tea. Um, and I've never tasted anything like it before. So I had to make a simple syrup from it. So I started there and muddled that with some um, blueberries and strawberries and some um, California blue whale gin. And then, mm. oh, gray whale gin. And then I added in bubbly rosé and yes. seltzer. And then I've sprinkled some gold confetti stars on top and I'm calling it the belief in magic. I love it. By the end of this drink, boy, you're ready for any sort of- <laughs> The stars really do it. Are they edible? <laughs> oh yeah. They're edible. This is, I'm never gonna make this uh, because <laughs> it's so cool and complicated. Um, I didn't, so before um, we were all supposed to stay inside our homes, like, I didn't really keep a lot of alcohol in my house because I was either working at work at the office or I was writing, which I can't do while I'm drinking because it makes me sleepy. Um, the drinking, not the writing. Um, <laughs> and so now I've like slowly started to like accumulate my sort of home bar so that I can make stuff. But I love cocktails and I love going to see what creative you know, concoctions people come up with. So just hearing you like describe this to me, like I want to pay you $13 for that. Like I don't, I no no desire to make it myself, but I, but you know, it, it seems like actual magic. You making that, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I'm so glad. I, I really wish I was just serving this too. And we were all enjoying this um, together, but I should definitely send you some of these edible stars so you can just put them even in your in your Dunkin' oh, Donuts hot water. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would have filled it entirely with rosé. The seltzer just seems like overkill at that point. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's some logical reason. It's just so that it doesn't knock me out. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be a porch sipper, but it's it's actually okay. like, it's very alcoholic. It's more alcoholic than you think because the gin is com it completely gets subsumed by everything else, but it adds this nice undercurrent. I love gin. Yeah. That's my favorite. I don't know this alcohol is in this cocktail. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a good um, category. <laughs> yeah. Those are the two liquors I keep here whiskey and gin for when I want to know and when I don't want to know. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, the next thing that we do on this show is what did you buy? recently yeah what did you um, buy recently so um one of the things that I have that I don't think a lot of other people do have is all of my drinkware in the house um is like handmade so I have Ooh. all these handmade wood mugs and I have hand-blown glass and um like arted glass basically painted glass cool so my most recent um 
uh, dig into this is Kiever Glass, K-E-E-V-E-R Glass. And um, the listener at home will not be able to see this, but they send me a print um, oh, with cool. the glasses that I buy. So um, I recently bought uh, actually a, one with a T-Rex on it. Um, a dinosaur mug and uh it's not a mug it's just a it's a beer glass but i can put anything in it i want (laughs) a a yolo i guess um i love these i love that they're all sort of science fiction and fantasy themed and you know someone put their art onto that and um glassware is a thing that i hold almost all the time like i'm constantly having a water or a cocktail or a coffee so um you know the idea that holding a piece of art while I'm drinking is very cool and special to me. I don't have a ton of art hanging on my walls because it requires me to get up the level (laughs) and like hardware pieces. Um, So that's one of the things that I bought recently. Um, And another thing I bought recently was a video game because I don't leave my house. Um, I did start playing video games in the pandemic though. And um, one of my most recent buys was the Mario Odyssey game, which I know came out cool. very long ago now. But um, I, you know, the video games that I play tend to be sort of like uh, escapist, not terribly difficult. I love puzzles. I love finding things. I love cute characters. I worked my way all the way through Mario Odyssey. Um, and like the last level where you're like, playing as Bowser like has this like incredible rock soundtrack and I felt truly like a rock star in this moment (laughs) like undeserved because it's like I mean uh, most of the game is like some is pretty simple platforming it did get harder to the point where I was like okay listen Mario don't (laughs) don't test me I'm just a noob here but um yeah no I love puzzling games I'm uh and sort of like adventure games and uh I'm um, massively into Breath of the Wild, which I also bought, but like last year, so that wasn't recent enough for me to like. Count it, but, um... Wow, that all sounds awesome! Uh, Mario Odyssey, good glassware. This is this all makes sense to me. This is this is. <laughs> I'm trying to fill my life with what joy I can find. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Uh, Drew, what did you buy? Um, I got. Two books in the mail from the folks at Gray Wolf, the two new J. Robert Lennon books. I've been a huge fan of his work since ages ago when I subscribed to Powell's book box. I got one of his books called Familiar, and I had never read any of his stuff before. And just immediately, I've read everything that he's written since. And so it's a short story collection called Let Me Think and a new novel called Subdivision. I don't know too much about either of them other than that they are, there's weird shit going on. Uh, the titles are very evocative. Right? It's just, I like feel like I already have a sense of these books and I have no clue. They have like I'm, a- I don't know the blurbs. They have a matching trim size too. And like the fonts are kind of the same. So it feels like maybe they should be connected, but also maybe they're just, it's just, there's like a lot of design stuff happening. Um, mm. But then Kellen, hearing you talk about uh, glassware made me think of a house thing that I got recently. Um, I'm ready. That's also beautifully designed. And that's a tushy. Oh, oh okay. It's life changing. Yeah. Yeah. It is a little, it's a little bidet that goes onto your toilet. Um, nice. We also just bought two <laughs> new toilets in our house. Uh, I mean, when you're at home all the time, you got to have luxury right where you are. It is. Yeah. 
it's, I think it's probably the best thing I bought during the pandemic. Mm. Just in terms of like the, for the cost, the like immediate change in quality of life is yeah. mm-hmm. small, but very <laughs> meaningful. <laughs> so I, um, I lived with a friend and her husband, shout out to Allie, um, for the first, for, for three months in the middle of the pandemic, because we were both very lonely. We've known each other for a long time and she has a like bidet attachment at her house that I got very used to. And then I came home and I was like, what? <laughs> How did I live before that? <laughs> hey, so I, I'm, I'm right behind you. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah. All right, Christopher, how about you? I bought a couple of things that I that I feel like are the two things that rage inside me, which is my I'm from Los Angeles and um I I we got sent that new um book about Los Angeles that Rosecrans Baldwin wrote, um, Everything Now, Lessons from the City State of Los Angeles. And I'm really excited to read him about on this. Like I I loved his book about Paris. Um Paris, I love you, but you're bringing me down. Um, and so having his mind on Los Angeles, where I'm from, is very exciting. And then I also, uh, we also got in the mail from Norton, um, New Yorkers, A City and Its People in Our Time by Craig Taylor. And I'm really excited about that too. It's just like getting into New Yorkers and the people that populate this wonderful city that I've made my home for 10 years. And um, you know, I'm a New Yorker and I'm a Los Angeles person, I guess. I guess. I don't know in my heart. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I hold LA in my heart. It's Ooh. somewhere inside me, maybe in my knees or something. Um, <laughs> but what's the title of the LA book? Because the Paris uh, book had a great title. Yeah. Everything Now. Okay. okay. Yeah. What's And it's that got a good right. subtitle. It's like Lessons yeah. from the City State of Los Angeles or something like that. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. Like thinking about it just LA feels like a city state in the same way that I guess New York does, but LA, yeah, I, I think mean, it's got the geography, you know, it does. Mm. It's so big. It does feel like its own state inside of California. And so many times you're in a, a city and uh, called something else. And it's like, yeah, we're kind of actually part of Los Angeles. If you, you want to get technical. I mean, I was about to say the only time I've been out to the area was for the Nebula conference in 2019. And it was like somewhere it's like in L. It said like in LA, but it was really in mm, something else. <laughs> Close enough. So that's uh so I have the two coasts. That's what I bought. Sure. That's really deep. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm so excited to talk to you about First Become Ashes. Do you want to tell our listeners what it's about? This is the question that I should have the answer memorized to, (laughs) where I have like a beautiful two-second pitch. Um, The one-second pitch is that it's about... um, It's about uh, the undoing of a cult from four points of view, three survivors and one outsider. Those cult members are um, a true believer, Lark, who is liberated against his will, Kane, his partner, who is the one that betrays them to the feds, Darren, Lark's sibling, who has always felt sort of neglected and jealous within the cult as a regular member, 
who has now been given the opportunity for a new purpose. And Calvin, who is a cute cosplaying nerd, a professional cosplayer um, who knows about the fellowship and desperately wants to believe that magic is real um, and offers his hatchback up <laughs> to take Lark on his quest that he anticipated going on across the country to slay a monster. That's the book. Yeah. That, I'm- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to start at the title. Um, it comes from a Nietzsche quote, right? And, yes. Uh, and just how did you decide on this for, for the title of your book and, and why Nietzsche? Uh, well, <laughs> It makes me sound smart. Um, <laughs> no, actually, so my friend, um, my friend Sarah Pinsker, um, obviously also a very, she's a very successful writer. She's incredible. Um, she was giving me title advice um, long ago when I was trying to publish my first short stories. She said, um, if I can't think of something good from the text, I will often go to Shakespeare, which is just free and open. And I'll do some keyword searches and see what I come up with. And, um, and if other people get it, then they feel smart. And if they don't, they assume that I'm smart. So <laughs> going to sort of like other, um, other thinkers and other, you know, um, creators of old or whatever to like sort of source titles, is just simply a trick that I've picked up. Um, but uh, the perspective title um, for this book was actually, uh, he who fights monsters and um we like we're sort of playing with it um there's this whole thing where like it is fantasy if you think it's fantasy so like maybe it's contemporary and it's got kind of like a literary feel to it and also like genre conventions and pop culture so we didn't want the title to feel too much of any one genre Mm. um and like the sort of monsters and we tried a couple things that had to do with like being anointed um all sort of felt very like religious and sort of like mainstream um fantasy trope sort of implying um so uh, my editor was like maybe you could just like look around within like the same sort of zone to see if anything else comes up and of course there's like this other Nietzsche quote um I, I should, you know, this is my, once again, my hint to memorize the whole thing. It's just something about like, um, you mean the actual quote? Cause I've got it up a few. Oh, you have it. Yeah. Yeah. It says something like you must first burn. You must be um, ready to burn yourself in your own flame. How could you rise anew if you have not first become ashes? Yes. Thank you so much. Um, because so, so that we thought really sort of gave the feel like first become ashes has a fantastical feeling to it, in my opinion. And, you know, there's this whole notion of like, Lark really has to destroy a lot of what he knew and who he was in order to, um, you know, be, have a new start, like become a new person. So, um, you know, this sort of, burning yourself, becoming ashes, um, that sort of like, I think of the ashes as like, almost like that sort of final resting, like in my head, I like see them sort of like, you know, twinkling down from the sky, like after some like big, you know, epic battle or whatever. Um, 
And so it sort of has that like notion of finalness to it. So we just thought it touched on a lot of nice notes and thanks Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really loved what you said about this novel is a fantasy novel if you want it to be a fantasy novel. I was so enthralled by the way that more or less with every chapter, I was like, hang okay, is magic real? Isn't it real? Am I supposed to choose? It was such a, a fantastic juggling act. And I would love to just hear about the creative process behind that. Cause I don't think I've ever seen it done in such a way that really makes it the reader question every single time. Like, oh, okay, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Mm. I love what you just said, am I supposed to choose? Because I feel like that brings me back to when I was like reading in school and I was like, I don't know what the right answer is. <laughs> the teacher has the right answer. Is it magic or not? <laughs> and then we'd of course get there and she would give some like generic answer that like, you know, oh, what do you think about this or that? Or well, you know, it's one of those did the author mean it things. Mm -hmm. This was a very, I did put a lot of thought into this. Um, <laughs> so, um, so sort of the question for those like listening um, is that like, uh, Lark and the other members of the fellowship are told like, um, you know, this is all, you've been fed a bunch of lies. Like you can't really do magic. And he's been doing magic his whole life. So why should he believe that when he can see it and feel it and experience it himself constantly? One of the original pitches for this novel is, um, and we don't use it anymore. So let me see if I can uh, come up with this. So I'd call this a fabulous Kimmy Schmidt meets I Kill Giants. Um, and oh. I Kill Giants is um, a graphic novel that I saw the movie adaptation of first. And it reminded me of, um, it's about like a girl who sees giants and kills them. Um, and it has to do with grief. And um, it reminded me of like when I was younger and I watched uh, first uh, Bridge to Terabithia and we got to the end and it was like to the Terabithias this not real and like all this stuff and I was like wow there's just like all these stories where um someone has this fantastical experience and it's like sort of taken away from them mm -hmm. in the end and I don't think that's fair um I also didn't want to validate like an abusive cult leader mm -hmm. and be like yes this is all accurate and she was definitely saving everyone so um you know making sure that the magic you know, the magic system, so to say, was actually more like who is doing the magic and at what point of view are we seeing it? So like somebody, um, there's, so like there's a scene, there's a healing magic scene where Lark performs healing magic on himself and he seems to be healed. He feels healed. Um, it's no longer an issue for him. And Calvin, the cosplayer is there, who's an outsider and he sees it happen sort of and describes it in a very confusing way but knows that Lark is better afterwards and you know so that satisfies him because he wants it to be real um but then you know he tells his friend and his friend is like you believe that so it's sort of like whose point of view are we looking at the magic from and um do they believe and that sort of like dictates whether the magic works and you know, I really wanted to have a big monster fight in there and I wanted to have spells and um, and I feel like I got it all in there and it really like, you know, there's a real answer. Like I have an answer. <laughs> Authors have to have, even if you don't 
aren't explicit with it, even if their answer is like, I don't know, like you have to have something in your mind while you're writing it so that you can keep semi-consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I do have an answer, but I don't want to like give it to people. Yeah. So um, I mean, you know, read through it. And I love that people have this reaction because it's really sort of like integral to like Lark's thoughts about his self, you know, like whether magic is working. It's such a good storytelling trick to the way that you sort of do like chapter or moment breaks right around some of those things. Like Lark mm-hmm. seems to, from his point of view, magically push somebody against a wall and then it cuts. And from a different point of view, it's like, oh yeah, he just threw that guy against a wall. But there's sort of that dissonance of like, but how could like, I don't know, he's a big guy, but like, is he that big? Mm. That's combat training. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A a little thing that I noticed a couple times in the book, there's points where you directly say, like a character says it or someone thinks it, like this isn't a fantasy novel. Like reading is different than experiencing. um, Reading is not the same as experiencing, I think is the quote in the book. And I'm curious about directly addressing like, the novel that you're reading in a novel, like what, when you play with those levels, what, you know, what's, what's going on? It's funny because um, I do identify so strongly with Calvin, even the, I feel bad because it's like, he has, <clears throat> he seems like he's a, kind of the fun character, right? <laughs> all, all this like pop culture stuff going on and he loves, and he's a nerd and lots of people who read fantasy who might pick up this book, consider themselves to be nerds too. And, um, and but he wants magic so badly to be real. But when we think about like sort of if all these books we loved were real, like they're, you know, you watch Lord of the Rings and 5,000 people die just like falling off the side of a castle. And like, that was probably us, you know? (laughs) (laughs) We're not Legolas, we're not Aragorn. (laughs) We're probably not even a Hobbit. Like, I mean, so, you know, when he, you know, I have this terrible joke with my editor. Like, I'm just writing books on ways to get a boyfriend that don't involve going on dates. Like, <laughs> none of the relationships in my books are model for what you want a boyfriend to be. But like, you know, there's that we put ourselves into these like fantasy elements of like, it would be incredible if I like could do if I were in Harry Potter. But then like would it be because like kids die every year in Harry Potter? Like, you know, just sort of some of the things where, um, you know, that was the thing that I wanted to sort of impress that like Calvin wants this so badly, um, but he's sort of feeling the reality of the situation because he's also living in a fantasy book, which is the one I've written and (laughs) people get hurt. Um, He's safe because I tend not to kill. I tend. I don't love killing characters. I would much rather them just suffer instead. <laughs> um, you can suffer more if you're alive. So, um, so you know, I, you know, it's he. It it does become very sort of like meta. But like you know, I I feel for him because I know that feeling of wanting to escape very badly into some place that isn't here. But then when you think of like the the literal practical level of that do you really want to? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. I think that uh, it's it's tough to kind of um, find the answer for that 
maybe I wouldn't want exactly these circumstances of magic, but I do want the mm-hmm. magic. You know, I do. Yeah, <laughs> nobody wants the the terror, the pain, or um, all the bad stuff. We just want the wand, man. <laughs> <laughs> Something that is um, shared in both of your books, in in, in Diocile and in this, um, is, are these BDSM elements. And mm. I, I know that a lot of reviewers and, and readers come at it, and they're like, "Ooh, this is this is you know transgressive and strange and crazy." And but like, there's this great Brontes Purnell quote where he's like, "I don't feel like I'm writing." you know, transgressive, I'm, I'm, I'm Danielle Steele in my mind. Like I'm just writing <laughs> really, really hot stuff. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how the BDSM elements um, fit into it for you. Yeah. It's oh, Danielle Steele. I mean, I'm, I'm very successful if I'm Danielle Steele. So <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think, I mean, I come from having written fan fiction when I was way too young to be writing the stuff that I was writing <laughs> in fan fiction. And this was where I learned about a lot of this stuff, right? Where I learned about, um, like, first of all, what sex looks like, um, which wasn't always, which wasn't always correct, you know, in fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> because it was like a lot of kids on the internet being like, ah, this is how the sex works. <laughs> Never had it. Um, and so, you know, I learned first about um, sex from fan fiction. Then I learned... Uh, that I started reading things that integrated like BDSM. And, um, you know, I think that a lot more people are sort of like um, from cultures that include those elements. When I say that to mean like things like fan fiction and, um, you know, we had like when after 50 Shades of Grey came out, like I saw, um, you know, I, um, I'm a paralegal. So at, I work at a law firm and there, I remember an instance of getting a professional like newsletter that I was looking at for an attorney and someone was like, what were we reading this past month? 50 Shades of Grey. I was like, are you joking me? It's like a professional newsletter. <laughs> it's like a BDSM erotica novel. And so like so much of this stuff has like actually become mainstream. Um, I think that people don't like it in science fiction and fantasy as much. Um, which is bananas to me because they love <laughs> violence, like just explicit violence yeah. and gore. And they like unexamined consent violations. I like to examine mine because I think that that is where the interesting stuff comes from. Um, and, you know, lots of, I wouldn't describe anything in, all. I wouldn't describe most of the stuff in my books as like, good solid BDSM where like you would go to like a playhouse and they would be like, yes, these are the rules and what we think is a healthy relationship. (laughs) Um, You know, um, there's like a scene where um, Lark is asking Calvin to hurt him because pain is how they power up their magic. And Lark's a masochist. Um, He doesn't know that, like he doesn't have a term for that. Like it's, but he likes it. whether or not that has to do with himself independently or because he's been sort of like told that like pain is good because magic is good. Um, And so Calvin's, you know, been around the block. He does like sexy cosplay photo shoots. Like, you know, that he's got like a, you know, 
BDSM Spider Man on his fans only only fans or whatever, uh-huh. and um, so like he knows like a you know a bit about you know how to approach this, but like when he sees like all these like tools that like Lark is presenting to him, um, he's like, wow, this is serious, and like um, he actually you know ends up um, being the one who like past fates because it's like too much for him not even the one who's being um acted on but like the one doing the acting because it's just so intense like that's not a a good example of like a bdsm interaction like afterwards he's like there was no safe word like i didn't know what to do like i hurt him so much like you know so um you know but i think that these like sort of these elements give frameworks for like characters to be able to um like sort of really think about their bodies because like these tools and like so like bdsm tools and like those kind of interactions and intimate 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 interactions like really ask people to like think about their bodies like for me i love writing about bodies and like if i'm going to be writing about sex i want to sort of like get in that space as much as possible and um I don't think it's transgressive I think it is a thing that huge portions of the population like just fine I think that people aren't used to it in their science fiction and fantasy and um there's a content warning on the book so like I don't know why people would be surprised um <laughs> but like the people who don't like it are just like this is porn and as you know first of all denigrating porn uh-huh. um you know there's plenty of totally healthy and fine porn makers out there um and uh you know it's <laughs> I find it frustrating because um you know I I don't think my work is porn. I think that um, it is their books that have sexually explicit material. Sometimes that's BDSM uh, tangential and sorry, <laughs> if that's not what you're looking for. It's like literally on the one of the first pages and the cover, just don't read it. Uh, they say in the old times, don't like, don't read. Uh, that's from fan fiction. So <laughs> it makes me so happy to be alive when folks like you are writing and publishing things because it feels like there's such a a marvelous I guess growth of like of what a novel can do in some ways where I mean I I was I loved both of these books both of your books I mean um and the way that like Dossal looks at capitalism in a way that just felt very I don't know I felt very fluent with it I was like and here's my subscription to Jacobin and here's this novel about like a, a queer dystopic capitalism run amok thing. I love the way in which it's just, I don't know. I just, it feels fluent to me in a way that I do wonder, like if, if the old timers who are a little more frightened by this are actually just frightened by sort of being confronted with a world that they no longer fully understand or a world that is more open about things that have always existed but now we're just fine being open about it well you i don't know if you two uh have heard the new lil nas x song <laughs> yeah 
because I'm like obsessed with it and I have been um, sharing memes back and forth with one of my <laughs> other publishing friends. Uh, shout out Tiana. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, you see how people react to that where it's like, I mean, it's incredible. Like what he's doing is incredible. Um, like that said, you know, like I, it's not anything that I, when I say it's not anything I haven't seen before, I don't mean to like dismiss it because he's clearly doing something great, but like the pieces of it, like mm -hmm. to, I've seen, I've seen like people in like thigh high boots, like pole dancing. And I've seen, you know, people like grinding, like in angel and devil costumes, mm -hmm. like, you know, like all the elements, like in different areas, mm -hmm. like this doesn't, nothing about this is new to me, but like, the people who want to sort of like be offended are like, oh, Satan, how dare you? <laughs> Y'all like we're the ones who told queer people that we were like satanic. So like he's just taking it and running. <laughs> blame him. I mean, right. I just people the outrage is always bigger than like whatever's happened. Yeah. I'm also really curious about the the creation of the fellowship itself, um, mm. because of course we are a society that loves to read and experience things about cults. So I there is of course a, a large <laughs> breadth of um, of work to pull on here. Yeah, I um, inventing a cult uh, a little harder than it. I mean, harder than it sounds. Um, I, it sounds hard. Um, it is, it was tricky. Um, I mean, I knew it wanted to, to be like uh, magic, right? So like I had a starting point, but um, I, I listened to a couple podcasts. Um, I so rarely have time to just like sit down and hold a book that like almost all my information comes in through uh, fiction or like fiction podcasts, uh, audiobooks, audio dramas, and nonfiction podcasts. So, um, like I've been listening to uh, Ono oh Ross and Carrie for a really long time, which is a podcast about um, we show up and ask the questions so you don't have to. They investigate uh, claims of the paranormal, um, fringe science, and spirituality. And so, like, they go to um, sort of like they did Scientology, for example, where they just like, they live in Hollywood. So they just like went and filled out a personality <laughs> test and like allowed themselves to be like taken in by like the classes and they just act normal and go as far as they can go. And they report on it all the time. So they've done lots and lots of different types of uh, spiritual organizations, some of which are significantly cult light and you can like feel it when you listen to the rhetoric. Um, I've also listened to other podcasts that was just called cults um, <laughs> where they look, look into the history and psychology of different cults. So like when I um, was putting one together, like you, ha you have to make it alluring and you have to make it, you know, not when often when I read survivors sort of like accounts of cults, like there are things that they miss. There were things that were good. There were reasons they were drawn in mm -hmm. or that they stayed. Um, when their family was drawn in and so like you know there's there's parts of the cult that are nice like everyone kind of knows each other there's like the sort of uh cooking 
cleaning, mending, like self-sustainability. Um, people are allowed to sort of like self-identify self and become themselves. Um, you know, they obviously have good camaraderie. Of course, like all that is like, on the other on the other end of it, like the leader is like teaching kids that like um, that pain is like the source of magic. So like and like teaching them to hurt each other for it. Like it's always stuck with me from The Handmaid's Tale. I forget the name of the character. Um, they said something like, "If we can, if we can get the women to like sort of monitor one another." Mm -hmm like self-policing and like I think that's a really sort of like effective in a bad way like tool that comes up a lot so um you know in this iteration I sort of let let that lead me to you know they have partners who like are hurting each other that way the cult leader sort of like not really involved in like that aspect so you get to be sort of you know you have to put a lot of terrible things together but you also have to make sure that those terrible things aren't so terrible that everyone's running for the hills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting balance. I, I was so, I was so intrigued by how, how it worked. And also just one of the, you know, making a park, the making them in an abandoned zoo was just mm. um, wonderful. And I can see how that could really pull people in. Cause it's like this own world to be a part of. We had this whole thing. I went to the zoo. So like, I mean, it's my local zoo. And so my mom and I went to the zoo and took a I just, I was like, you can come, we're going to look at animals, but I'm going to take pictures of like the paths because like, I want to know where somebody might live if this, there were no animals and like where they would eat and all this kind of stuff. So I'm taking pictures and, um, one of the places that ended up being sort of like the weapons cave um, has a sign out front for hellbenders, which are these like salamanders. And we went through this whole thing, my editor and I, where he was like, what is a hellbender? Like, is this some <laughs> kind of monster? And I was like, no, they're for real salamanders. Like I became that author. <laughs> I became that author that said like, no, for real, trust me, this is real life. And it's like real life doesn't always translate well to fiction. Uh, yeah. So I had to make some modifications. But uh, if you go to the Baltimore Zoo, you can walk the path and <laughs> see the hellbenders. And there's a weapons cave. And, you know, most of it's just real. I'm not like, I struggle with place. Place is like one of my weaknesses. Like I really have to have like been there before and like looked at it, like smelled it and tasted it and touched it sort of thing in order to like, feel like my characters aren't just like in a white room. So that's why I often set my stuff like in Baltimore or um, at the zoo that I've been to a dozen times, stuff like that. Thinking about zoos and also uh, those tangible things that ground a person in a novel, there's, there's a moment in First Become Ashes that in retrospect, I was like, <gasps> Oh, um, when a character pulls a book off of a shelf and that book is Jurassic Park. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, which is the book that you you brought to us. And I, I'm going to throw two questions at you. And one of them is just like, tell us why you asked us to, all, I think all of us reread Jurassic Park. Um, but then also about dropping it into the novel. Okay, so it's like, it's weird because I'm very much like a person who's has like many obsessions. So like for years, I'll just be like, I'm just watching Harry Potter for like five years. Like I'm just listening to handsome music for like 10 years. Like, and so um, 
I feel like I'm very much like in a Jurassic Park phase right now. Um, it's a comfort read for me. So I reread it multiple times last year and um, most recently, like I literally just finished rereading The Lost World like yesterday, um, which is so, and I love the movie so much. Um, and I'm so hyped for the next, the latest Jurassic World movie oh, yeah. series. I've watched all the Camp Cretaceous uh, on Netflix. Like I'm literally a person now who has like three Jurassic Park podcasts that I'm subscribed to. Um, <laughs> so I can get like all the details and like, I'm ready to go to Universal and ride the new ride. Um, but anyway, so I, I love Jurassic Park. Um, because of dinosaurs like because when I was a kid like I thought I wanted to be a paleontologist and I actually did major I majored in archaeology no way. like low-key in part because I like didn't understand the difference like, <laughs> and I was like oh right this one's history and like buildings and stuff that's cool too um I don't really want the paleontology life I'm not like a desert camping kind of <laughs> but also the more I reread Jurassic Park like the more I sort of love that it's like, it feels very like queer and trans to me. Like, um, even though I know that was not like the setup, but it is a takedown of like a uh, American corporate, a corporation, mm -hmm. like American corporation that like um, is constantly like making cuts like in quality and safety for price. You know, in the movie, it's all spare no expense. That's not how it is in the book. Yeah. Um, and Another thing that I love, oh, sorry, it's the dinosaurs. I'm so ahead of myself because I have so much to say about it. The dinosaurs, like they go through this whole thing where it's like, oh, the dinosaurs like are all female. And they're like, how do you know? Do you look up the dinosaurs skirts? And it's like, well, like you know, the dinosaurs literally change their sex organs so that they can make more dinosaurs. And I love this sort of like life finds a way applied to like this sort of like queer notion where it's like, um, you know, we're gonna, queer people, like, no matter, like, sort of what is put on us, like, are still gonna keep, like, evolving and uh, growing and, um, you know, like a dinosaur. And then the dinosaurs eat all of the bad people, like, most of the bad people, like, that's my other favorite thing about sort of the Crichton verse is that, like, um, there's almost like a moral attachment to death, mm -hmm. right? In most things, like you watch, uh, if you watch like a Game of Thrones, like, you know, anybody's on limits, anyone could die, your favorite character, your sweetie cinnamon roll. <laughs> Jurassic Park, it's like mostly just the bad guys die. Mm -hmm. Like the people that Crichton thinks deserve it die, mm -hmm. which is very cathartic when you're living in a world where that's not how things work. Mm -hmm. Like just, um, you know, terrible people are frequently not punished. I yeah. incorporate that in my, you know, that's a big part of my like writing too, is that like people who do bad things often live to see the other side. Like there's no judgment. Um, but like in Jurassic Park, there is judgment and it's by like Tyrannosaurus Rex. And so, you know, when I was like trying to think of a book to put on a shelf, um, I had like a lot more like sort of um, fantasy specific books like our references and stuff that I was going on because it was a fantasy book but like I have Jurassic Park like on my shelf and I was like hold on 
monsters, like dinosaurs are monsters, uh-huh. basically. And I want Lark to be like, what is happening here? Like, there's a giant monster on the cover of this. Like, and like, that's sort of his, he doesn't really ever fully understand like conventions and cosplaying mm-hmm. in like the main part of the novel. But like the idea that like um, outsiders have their own stories that like are about monsters and like he picks it up and he tries to read it and he like, doesn't know any of the words inside of it but like you know he's trying and I really just sort of love that like mini correlation it was all I needed for like a couple good like metaphors basically <laughs> but I, I just that. freaking love that book it's been a while since I read it I mean I read it in elementary school like I, I feel like even um maybe in junior high, but regardless, read, it's, read, I, read. it was so good to reread it because like, oh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And, you know, it's interesting to read it with like my, you know, read many books now and I got mm-hmm. an MFA. Like I, now I kind of know how this all worked. And it's just like, so, somehow Michael Crichton made like people just taking the taking the stage spotlight to like explain their cool nerd thing for a while I love that so much <laughs> it's so like it's like I have a thing to say about dinosaurs and then like someone else is like I have a thing to say about computers just, like, <laughs> <laughs> you know okay so one of my friends um uh, one of my friends uh had just finished another author friend Um, had just finished reading Jurassic Park for the first time after having watched the movie. And she was going through things she liked better and things she didn't like better. And she was like, there's just like so much exposition. I was like, yeah, but I love the exposition. I don't know why, but like, you know, there's this whole like writing rules thing where it's like the rules, the rules exist, like sort of guide people so that their books work, right? But like, if you can break the rules and it works, it doesn't matter what the rules are. Like I could listen, Lost World is just... 20 pages of Ian Malcolm being like, oh, like <laughs> chaos is everything. And I'm like, you're so high on yourself. And I also want to listen to you talk for 20 minutes. Like, I do not know why. <laughs> I don't know any of the science. I love that it feels real to me. Like I could attend this as a lecture and I would just be like, cool, I got it. Thanks. <laughs> I love that so much. You're so right. I thought it was brilliant though. I mean, of course I'm one that you can't help but read this and like have the movie playing alongside it Mm. in your head. Um, Even though of course like characters are different and like lines are in different people's mouths, which is really weird. Mm. Um, But the brilliance of taking all of those, a lot of those explainers and making it like a weird ride movie in the, in the, oh my God. Yeah. In the movie is so perfect. And having that like animated um, double helix, like tell you what was going on. <laughs> yes. I my love Mr. That. DNA. <laughs> <laughs> I love Mr. DNA. It's so good. I mean, I feel like I read everything that Michael Crichton wrote when I was 12. My parents wouldn't mm-hmm. let me watch all of Jurassic Park because they were afraid I would get too scared. I didn't, uh, <laughs> see the scene where the lawyer gets eaten by the T-Rex off the toilet until I was in college. And I was like, (laughs) is this a deleted scene? And everybody was like, what (laughs) are you talking about? And I was like, um, but reading these books and, and this is the first one I've come back to, but like for me, timeline is still one of my all time favorite books. I've also read that. And, and like the way that he, I don't know. It's like, it's become a derogatory thing to like the Dan Brown 
thing of like short, punchy things. Everything ends very quickly. This, I feel like you're never with a character for more than maybe a page and a half. Like he's spinning through points of view so fast. But it, you're always just like, hell yeah. That idea of, of if you can break the rules and it works, mm-hmm. then fuck the rules. It's yeah. like, I don't know. It's like Dan Brown read this and I was like, I can do that. And it's like, well, it's harder than it looks. <laughs> I mean, I recently rewatched. I haven't reread. I read the Dan Brown books when I was in. I think they came out when I was in college, early college, because there was this whole thing where like, one of my professors who like was went was from Harvard was like, oh, they don't even have a symbology school at Harvard. <laughs> was like that's because everyone was taking it so seriously. Like yeah. I feel like every these books almost fall like in a similar category to me of like books that like people would think are real if they like didn't stop to like critically think or like do research because the characters have so much information yeah. and it like has that fast paceness too, which like, you know, he clearly pulled it off enough to sell millions of copies <laughs> yeah. and get like, uh, those books. and get yeah. an adaptation made of all of them. So like, who kick good for him. Yeah. I would take that. Um, no shade on the, <laughs> the, the, the beginning of, um, of, of Jurassic park. I mean, it's, it's just really, it's, I feel like it's him laying out, like, this is how my magic system works. Like, the, I, in case you were, in case you wanted to know how we were going to make dinosaurs, I'm going to tell you bit by bit, <laughs> like, exactly how it happens, because this is what makes me excited. Um, you know, it's, it's, you're just in the hands of, like, like, a really gleeful professor. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes feel like writers are afraid to give stuff away because they think that the element of surprise is something that keeps people reading. Like they want to know why, or they want to know what's going to happen. But telling people stuff is often so much more thrilling because then the reader knows, oh shit, something's gonna happen. And I love that. I love the opening so much, how it feels like I'm getting all this information and I know what I know what's going to happen and that makes it all the more terrifying. There's this um there's this conversation about halfway through the book between the lead scientist and Hammond where the lead scientist is like okay these dinosaurs they're good and they're basically ready but I'd like to kill them all and like do another version because they're too real. Like they're too fast, oh, yeah. they're too scary. Oh. And Hammond is like, yeah, they're, they're, that's cause they're real dinosaurs. Like that's it. And he's like, yeah, they're not real though. Like they're, we made them up. So like making another version isn't crazy because it's not like you're making a different <laughs> one that's not real. All of this isn't real. Um, and it's, and like Hammond does not understand it at no. all. Yeah. And Everybody, I feel like everybody's on Wu's side. Um, that it's you're like want to shake him and be like, no, he's right. Like you need to make the raptor slower. I love agreed. Right, (laughs) I I love this about like um his character uh, Henry Wu 
And um, I mean, if you haven't read Jurassic Park yet, I'm going to spoil it for you. But like, <laughs> it's been so many decades now. Um, but like, I mean, so Henry Wu dies in the book, which like, I guess Michael Crichton thought like was, this is always one that surprises me. Because if you think that most of the deaths are moral deaths, like Henry Wu was like actually sort of like some young kid that like mm-hmm. gets brought in and like keeps trying to tell uh, Hammond like we should do this differently and is constantly steamrolled exactly what you just said and um, but I loved so much more what they've sort of done with his character in the movies yeah. which is like bring him along as like this constant where like he is like making up new dinosaurs and you know when even still in the Jurassic World series um people will come to him and be like what did you cook up in that lab like we wanted real dinosaurs and he's like no we're still just making stuff up like the dinosaurs i made up the first time weren't real either like um (laughs) you know you asked me for um something scarier i can't just make you something scary that doesn't also have like the behavioral traits that correspond to scary Mm -hmm. like i'm is he just like you know is he just the tool like he is sort of portrayed as like the sort of shadowy scientist who's like mm-hmm. he's always sneaking out before he gets eaten yeah. like, in all the movies <laughs> um but like on the other hand you know i love him yeah, yeah. i'm sorry i could truly spend like three hours talking about the dress <laughs> it's so i mean and it's it's so wild to revisit it now i guess as a grown-up all of these things like the ways in which all of this the those morality things that I feel like I received at an age when I wasn't yet really thinking about morality. And I feel like that's maybe largely true for the generation who came of age in the nineties and the early two thousands. Like we saw these movies. Yeah. You, maybe you saw the Spielberg adaptation that like makes Hammond a nicer person. But like, if you Mm. read this book, I don't know. It feels like one of those books where everybody now who's pissed off at the government and pissed off at corporations you might find Jurassic Park on their shelves and that sense of like, yeah, why is this guy just being an asshole in the pursuit of, he's going to kill people. And then when he does die, you are like, yes, <laughs> it's like a, a great slow death too. It's not just Ooh. like the chomp on the toilet, right? It's, yeah. Um, he like falls down and like the compies get him. And there's this whole thing where like about the venom where like the venom lures you into mm-hmm. it. And it's like, this is sweet, sweet. And you know, he's being slowly tiny bite by tiny bite eaten alive. And yeah, he is a real jerk in the, um, in the books. And they absolutely sort of like wash that over in the movies. In fact, in the Lost World movie, this doesn't happen in the, obviously he's not in the second book. (laughs) Um, Like in the Lost World movie, there's the scene where, um, Malcolm comes in for like to be recruited mm-hmm. to go on the mission and uh, Hammond's like oh we set up a nature preserve to like move all these dinosaurs from like site B and Malcolm's like oh so you went from capitalist to naturalist in just three short years <laughs> and like that just does not happen like that with like these huge like immorally wealthy people like and you know he in, the law, in uh, Jurassic Park is at the end of it still even thinking to himself like i did this wrong like henry Wu was the wrong scientist Mm -hmm. i brought the wrong people to visit me everyone's wrong everything's wrong about this except for my part in it the revelation that Wu is like in his early 30s is also like a like 
a really different feeling that hits real differently uh, in in my early 30s. Um, <laughs> but like in his career trajectory, that's early for like, I would assume yeah. like for a scientist who's like trying to, like most of the other people are like, I think Grant is older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, all these people have sort of like progressed and become like very established in their field. And like uh, Hammond puts the same blame and weight on Wu who's like essentially a kid Mm -hmm. in his field as he does on these like people who are much more advanced um reading Jurassic Park after so close to reading first become ashes I was thinking about um especially that conversation between Hammond and Wu about real dinosaurs and what's real it kind of it I was thinking about it in terms of like what's real magic like well defined magic you know like tell me what tell me what real ma- tell me what magic is to you and i'll tell you what's real about it um and so i feel like that was a really fun um further layer to this um and so that was really neat so i'm thanks for bringing jurassic park back into my life because Absolutely. i don't know if i would have reread it i've been inspired to reread it because you know it's something that lives in the cultural consciousness so high up mm-hmm. i mean it's one of these things that's like I was looking at the Amazon ranking of it because I was just curious and it's still in the top like 2,500 books on Amazon like today. That's crazy. Like when, it's so good. I literally just like, we'll go watch, I'm probably going to watch it after this like while I cook dinner because. Hell yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So we we obviously all very highly recommend going back and rereading Jurassic Park or for the first time even like it's really fun to even if you know the movie like by heart and have never read the book it is different and oh, yeah. really like there's some really fun differences they're pterodactyls like, yeah yeah there's all sorts of bird animal yeah oh, the whole all those scenes got ripped out of the book and put into the later <laughs> yeah films. i do appreciate that from the filmmaker's point of view that they were like well that was a cool scene now let's just shoehorn it into this movie <laughs> we read some pretty cool books we recommend you All right, Christopher, you're so eager. Give us, get a, kick us off. Oh, with recommendations. Yes, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I'm going to recommend, I remember I talked about these when they came out, um, but they reissued the original hardcovers of the first few Beverly Cleary books. um, And I love them. They're a fantastic reading experience with the original illustrations as well. And, um, you know, Ribsy is probably my favorite of the first four and um, because it's from the perspective of a dog and it um, kicked off my obsession with books from the perspective (laughs) of dogs and um, I just I I love Beverly Clary and um, it broke my heart to hear that she passed away but also 104 with as much celebration of her work I'm just you know that's (laughs) If you're going to go, it's a good, it's a pretty good yeah, way to go. Yeah. Um, and same with Larry McMurtry, who, of course, is another legend that I absolutely loved. And um, and Lonesome Dove is just one of those reading experiences that I can always recommend to anybody. Um, and then finally, not book related, but, and I'm also late to this party, but my God is the Americans, an amazing television show 
Um, I it's it's so so good. And even though you're when when you come to a show late to the party, it can almost be better because like all the seasons are out, <laughs> and I can just like I don't have to wait between years and like no like I can just go from episode to episode and it's beautiful. And the, uh, if you've sort of been sleeping on the Americans like I had, um, I recommend uh, picking it up now. I've been sleeping on it. I have no idea what it's about. So I'll probably oh, Google it. It's good. Yeah, it's really good. 80s spies in America. Um, Ooh. Yeah, yeah. Russian, okay. Russian, and Russian 80s spies. And Carrie Russell. Carrie Russell. Huh. Matt Reese. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, Kellen, do you want to take, take a recommendation turn here? Yeah. Um, I'll wreck a book in a movie. Um, so the only new book that I read, I'm so bad. I'm such a terrible author. But look, I just, reading was very hard last year too. I just reread everything. Amen. The only new book that I read, that I read last year was Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, who like doesn't need my hype. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, talk about that's, it's extremely up my alley. Like I love, I mean, I, the pitch, it's not pitched sort of traditionally, but like it sort of sets you up where it's like there's a person who is called Piranesi who lives inside the house, always lived inside the house and the house is self-contained and there are tides and like, it just has that sort of closed mysterious space vibe that I love to it. Mm -hmm. But the way it sort of like expanded to like be about like dealing with trauma and like unlearning these are all things I'm clearly interested in and like all of my work as well so like um that was an incredible read um and satisfied as you can tell multiple uh things that I love and a tv show I just started watching the first new tv show in a while because I just re-binged all of Grey's Anatomy <laughs> all like 17 seasons and you can tell because even in First Become Ashes it's referenced where Calvin's like oh my friend Lillian is like a hot Grey's Anatomy level doctor wife and I was, um but so uh, I just started watching uh For All Mankind oh yeah um on Apple TV which um I sort of it's an like an alternate space race a TV show where like we didn't make it to the moon first and so like things are really escalating between us and Russia like for different um space milestones so to say um and I love that sort of genre like I watched I rewatched Hidden Figures and cried over that and then um I was like I need no I need more space and I saw <laughs> I think I saw I think I saw Sherry Priest recommending this on uh, Twitter and I was like if you think it's good because I love her work too um then I'm into it so I just started that I'm only a couple episodes in but it is awesome. so good I can't wait for you to get just to the end of the first season it's amazing really okay yeah. I'm ready I'm only a couple in I can only watch tv while I cook dinner <laughs> makes sense I can only listen to audiobooks while I'm in the shower like there's only <laughs> so much time in the day <laughs> Drew you gotta you gotta take us home Okay, I have two books. Uh, one of them shares a book birthday with First Become Ashes, and that Ooh. is the new Jeff Vandermeer book, Hummingbird Salamander. Um, oh, I'm supposed to get a copy of that. Oh, yeah. Tell me it's great. It's <laughs> so great. I mean, I, I love everything that Jeff has ever written, and I am such a super fan and, and always will be. 
this book on the surface seems like it seems more normal. It seems like it's going to be just kind of a straightforward, like eco thriller. And there's sort of a little bit of the, like, at first you're kind of wondering, you know, I don't know that last book had like a floating bear destroying a city. Like what's the deal? But the way that he like, it's a culmination of all of the things that he's always been interested in around the environment and the way that people can affect the environment and sort of, the ways in which individual choices can ripple out. Um, and it's just like, it's also a great page turning thriller, like a true race against the clock kind of thriller. Um, I really loved it. I have, I can't stop thinking about it. Um, and the other book that I can't stop thinking about is a sequel. Uh, I recommended Arcady Martin's A Memory Called Empire ages ago on the show. It was my favorite book of 2019. And I absolutely devoured A Desolation Called Peace, the, the sequel, the second half of the duology. Um, it takes all of the ideas of this like semi-Byzantine empire out in space with a strange alien race that's like chipping away at the edges of this empire with internal strife and it just, she manages to do new things. It's a new take on a first contact story. I don't mm -hmm. think I've ever read anything quite like it. Um, and it, you know, it's always tough when you're like, I love that first book so much. Is the second book going to be good? <laughs> and it's so, ah, God, it's just relieving when it is, mm -hmm. when you're like, God damn, mm -hmm. it's just as good. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, Arkady is very smart. So I'm like in no way surprised. <laughs> <laughs> she used to live in Baltimore. So like we've been on a couple of panels before and like she just knows so much about like cities. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> smart books. Okay. <laughs> awesome. We can also recommend very safely. Yes. First Become Ashes. It's terrific. Oh, it's so good. It, it really, talk about page turning. It's just, it's just. Shucks, friends. It's so good. <laughs> This has been a great conversation, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, we're Thanks so glad you could come on our out. show. Yeah. To everybody out there in Radio Land, we <laughs> love it when you do things like rate our show on iTunes or give us money on our patreon.com slash smdb. And we really think it's cool when you support the authors that come on our show. So go by First Become Ashes and Docile. Um, and enjoy your reading lives. <laughs> <laughs> that was Damn it. Slightly <laughs> ominous. Wow.